0: We'll be in 1 John chapter 2, if you'll open with me there. We'll be continuing our series in 1 John today, moving into another test, the test of worldliness. We'll read all of John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, I think. So, 1 John, chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly is the love of God perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning, But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded him, I am writing you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name'sake. I am writing you, fathers, because you know Him, who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because I have, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ this is the antichrist he who denies the father and the son no one who denies the son has the father whoever confesses the son confesses whoever confesses the son has the father also but what you heard from the beginning abide in you And it is true and is no lie. Just as it has been taught, you abide in him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the great encouragement we get from it. And ask, Lord, your strength and blessing as we consider it this day. And ask for grace our hearts that we might receive and understand these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John is continuing now. We looked at verses 12 through 14 last week about John's purpose in writing, why he wanted to write them, why he is writing them, what he's actually writing them about. And he's continuing that thought now in verse 15 with another test. Uh, He's warned them about their faith already quite a few times, even though we're only now into the beginning of the second chapter. And he's writing to us, he says, because you have overcome the evil one. And now he's explaining part of what that means in verse 15 and following. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Lovers of the world do not have the love of the Father in them. This is something Jesus has taught in his ministry and something that's important to us. In John chapter 15, he says in verse 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you of its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. See, we are not part of the world, and we are not therefore to love the world. He explains this relationship even further in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he says in verse 6, I have manifested your name, He's praying, to the people you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Remember, that was the test of loving God is to keep his word. And he goes on in verse 14 to say, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I did not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And so Jesus is explaining to us that we're, we're not part of the world as it stands. And as John is using it here, do not love that world that we're not part of. Going back to our text In verse 15, note carefully the logic in the second sentence of that verse. The logic is quite clear. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Loving the world is evidence that someone does not have the love of the Father. Loving the world is not evidence, or it is not a cause for God not to love you, to stop loving you. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, if you love the world, God will no longer love you. He's not saying, if you love the world, God doesn't love you. If you stop loving the world, God will love you. That's not what he's saying. It's a test about your sanctification, about your place in God, whether you have faith. He's saying, if you love the world then you don't have God's love on you, in you. Now, this is the third test, and we're going to look at this in a little more detail in a moment, but remember the first test of Christ-likeness in the first six verses of the chapter. If we say we know God, if we know God, we will love God, and we will love God by keeping his commandments and walking as Jesus walked. The second test in verse 7-11 Test of brotherly love. It's one of the commandments that God gave that is a test in the first, the first test, but He's making it a second explicit test. If we walk in the light with God, we will love our brothers. And thus we can examine ourselves. Am I loving my brother? That tells me whether I'm really in the light. Uh, if not, if I'm not loving Him, then I'm not walking in the light. And God is light. And now verse 12 through 17, or really 15 through 17, test of worldliness. If the love of the Father is in us, then we do not love the world or the things of the world. How do we know if God loves us? How do we know if God has called us? How do we know if God has transformed our heart and our life? Well, these are the tests John is giving us to help us and to encourage us. The Apostle John here says, Do not love the world. Now it's interesting. The Apostle of Love says, Do not love. And that's because if you love God, you cannot love the things he hates. It would not be love, and that's why he's telling us this way. Uh, This is right on, following right on brotherly love. And obviously, We know brotherly love is good and necessary, and he's made that a test. If you don't love your brother, you don't know God. Uh, And here is don't love the world. There's a difference in the kinds of love. Now, I've heard the excuse made many a times that, oh, my brother has some taint of the world in his life. He has sin. And therefore, I don't have to love him. In fact, I'm forbidden to love him. I have this proof text. I don't have to obey him. I don't have to obey the commandment. I don't have to love my unlovable brothers. I'm good. Paul says in Philippians 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and the same love being of full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. You know, the call to love our brothers in the second test is a significant one. We have a tendency to be worldly, to do things out of selfish ambition, to do things out of conceit. We want to prove ourselves, to be better prove ourselves, and give ourselves hope. Uh, for many people, assurance of salvation is assurance that they're better than somebody else, and therefore God will have to love them. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth, as Scripture makes plain. Uh, the point he's John is making here in these two tests is you have to love your brother. That's part of the test. You don't love the world, if you're trying to use the world the brother's sin as an excuse not to love him, because he's worldly, then you really don't know what you're doing. You now who is perfect? Christ. Uh, I've seen this as an excuse many times. People say, "Oh, my brother, my pastor, my elder, my boss, my husband, my wife, etc., has sin in their life, and therefore I don't have to love them. I can hate them. I can despise them. I can disobey them. I can do what I need to do to feel good about myself. I can assure you that for me, a pastor, a husband, a father, I'm not perfect in any of those. Far from it. Just ask my wife and kids. And I'm sure you could do the same. None of us is going to be perfect. And in fact, if somebody thinks they're perfect, Go back to 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, if we're claiming we're perfect, we don't know God. And therefore, if we know God, if we're a brother, we have sin. And so we need to be careful not to use the sin of our brother to say we don't need to love him. Or to say that, oh, our brother has worldliness in him, and I'm supposed to hate the world, and therefore I hate him. These all follow together, these tests. And it goes back even to the first one. Love of God is obedience to his revealed will. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 1 John 14, 21. And so we have a chain. To have or to know the commandments, to keep the commandments, proves that they love Jesus. And thus they are loved by the Father. And here, love of the world means not loved of the Father, and so it can all be tied together and comes back to that point that believers cannot love the world. If they do, they're not really believers. It's a strong point and a harsh point because we all have certain amount of love for the world in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus makes it clear, though, that this love for the world is incompatible with love for God. He says in Matthew 10:37 and following, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Parallel passage in Luke 9 adds to it that what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? There's a problem with love for the world, and that worldly love is loving anything more than God or loving anything God hates, including even our own families. We are commanded to love our brother, to love our children, to love our spouse, to love our parents, to obey where it's required. And yet if we do that more than God, then we have turned from God. Our love for God makes it really impossible to love the world. Now, you might ask the next question, what's the world? Our text gives us a couple of insights And what John means, in verse 16, it's the things that come not from the Father. In other words, if God hasn't implemented it, if God hasn't done it, then it's the thing of the world. Or if it's done in a way contrary to God, it's the thing of the world. Uh, What he's not saying is as important as what he is saying. In verse 17... He also says it's the things that are passing away. So as we read about heaven, we read about eternal life, we read about the new heaven, the new earth, those things are what we have. And the things that are not included in that are the world. Now, he doesn't mean necessarily creation itself, because remember, when God created all things, Genesis 1 the last verse 31 He saw everything that he made and behold it was very good and it was evening and morning of the 6th day when God created it it was all very good and he's not talking about not loving that and the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork Psalm 19:1 he's not talking about his creation being hated uh, we know that the creation is very useful in Romans 1, 19 and 20. It says, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, they can be clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that man is without excuse. You know, it's not the creation itself that he's talking about when he talks about the world. It's more the cursed creation. Remember, cursed is the ground because of what you have done, because you've listened to your wife and you've eaten the fruit I forbid you to eat, Genesis 3, 17 and following. And we know that all of creation is waiting eagerly and longing for the revealing of the sons of God, Romans 8, 19 and following. For the creation was subject to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain a freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what he's talking about here is this cursed creation, the things of this cursed world, really the things which are coming to us from Satan. In First John five nineteen, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of, of the evil one. And so the evil one is the one who controls this world, and it's the things from the evil one that are not coming from God that are the things of the world we ought to be avoiding. And that brings us down to verse 16. All that is in the world is not from God. Meaning all those sinful things. John defines the godless things of the fallen world which don't come from the Father and really only lead us to sin. And he, he breaks those into three broad categories, which we'll be looking at here. The first thing we need to do, though, is note that these things don't come from God. They're not part of that very good creation. They're perverted, they're corrupted from his goodness by the work of Satan by the corruption and sinfulness of us as men, particularly as unbelievers. And these are all things that we once walked in as Christians. We're told in Ephesians 2, the beginning of the chapter, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we all once walked in worldliness that John is talking about, and he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive with Christ. By grace have you been saved. So these were all the things we once walked in as an unbeliever. And he breaks them down into these three categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now there's some debate about what he means specifically by each of these, But he's really taking all the sinful things that we have in this world, all the sinful things we have in life, all the sinful things within ourselves, and he's kind of trying to make sure he's covered them all so that we understand. (coughs) The desires of the flesh would be probably those sinful cravings that come from within, that come from us. Uh, Food, drink, marital relations. None of those things are sinful in themselves. Their sinfulness comes from being perverted by the wicked, by the world, by Satan. Used as the Father intended, those things are holy. But corrupted by our flesh, they become gluttony, drunkenness, immorality, and sinful. What I'm trying to say is a, a delicious meal lovingly prepared by our wife or spouse with a glass of wine and enjoying an evening together, there's nothing sinful in any of that. But when we turn it into gluttony and drunkenness and immorality, then it becomes sinful. And then it becomes of the world, not of the Father. So that's a distinction I think we need to remember And Ecclesiastes 313. Solomon tells us that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is a gift of God to man. Uh, he talks about really materialism and worldliness in that book. Ecclesiastes is really the the examining of worldliness by the wisest man on earth. And his conclusions come all to the end, that it's meaningless, it's empty, that fear God, keep his commandments, and enjoy him is really where we need to be. But he does say that we should enjoy the things the Lord has given us in the way that's not sinful, because that is a gift from God. So, in general, all of those temptations that come from our flesh that we want more pleasure, more pride, more whatever, are things that are from the world and from the devil and not from God the Father. Second broad category he makes is a desire of the eyes. I think the, the temptations of the things that come from without. The woman saw the tree and it was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise. Genesis 3, 6. So she took and ate and gave it to her husband, and he ate also. What was the problem? They could see. It was desirable. They could see it would make them wise, that it would taste good, that it was beautiful. And they were tempted then to turn from God, from that. In Joshua 7, there's a story of... Achan and his sin. In verse 21, he he finally is confessing the sin. It resulted in Israel losing a battle and many dying, and God's wrath being upon the people. He said, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. With the silver underneath. Now, we can read what happened of the destruction of him and his family, but also the harm done to Israel. But what was the problem? He saw these things and he desired them, he coveted them. Covetousness is one of those sins where we see the desire of the eyes. Uh, David would be another great example of that in 2 Samuel eleven. He happens to be up on the roof in verse 2, and he looks across, well, from his couch, and he's walking up on the roof, and he sees a woman bathing, and she was beautiful. And we all know how that worked out. He had plenty of wives, but he decided to take a different man's another man's wife. Now people say, Oh, it's only natural. But worldliness does have great consequences. If you think of those three examples, the consequences were catastrophic. I love what Job says. He says, I made, in Job thirty-one his." he says, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then would I gaze upon a virgin? The meaning being, he, he made a covenant with his eyes not to look. And you know, when I read that book, when, when I read that, I thought, that's, That's very wise, not to look at the things you desire, not to look at the things that tempt you. Don't look overly much at such things. One of the reasons I mentioned before, I don't watch the Summer Olympics anymore. It's too much temptation for the eyes. If I do, I could get in trouble. I try not to go and look at all of the coolest toys and the latest gadgets and the latest cars for the same reason. They can bring covetousness in my heart. And so the desire of the eyes for things beyond what you need, for things what, beyond what the Lord has for you. And the pride of life, the third division he makes. Pride in all the things we have and things we do. Literally, the meaning here is that empty boast about the things that make life possible. Uh, the word there is literally just life but it can mean the things required for life. Uh, This word is the same word John uses in the next chapter in 1 John 3, 17. he says, if anyone has this world's goods, that's, that's that word, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so the idea is all of those things that we have, And not just things we have, but the things we do. The pride part comes into play there as well. This word is also used interestingly by the Apostle Paul. And I want us to think about that for a moment. In 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, he says, "'Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ.'" No soldier of Christ gets entangled in civilian pursuits. The word translated civilian in my text is the word life, or the things of life, worldly pursuits. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Well, it is Christ, it is God who has enlisted us, and we should not be distracted then by the things of the world, the things that are required for life. When we are, it makes it very hard for us to do things like rejoice with those who rejoice. We get greedy, we get covetous, we get proud, we get envious. All of those things can be covered in this pride of life. And loving those things really creates a lot of conflict within our life and within our ability to follow God. You remember in John 11:42 and 43 says that many of the authorities believed in him, in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now You could really understand that they were in danger of losing everything. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, you were essentially being robbed of your citizenship in Israel, your place in Israel. When I think about these leaders, they would lose their position as a leader. They would lose the right to teach, the ability to earn a living that way. They would probably lose their home. They would become an outsider, a foreigner. We see this in Paul's life where he he talks about this, and we see it in what happened to him. Uh, remember his battle with the circumcision group of the Pharisees in Philippians 3. He says, look out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And these are the things that were at stake in his life. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worse of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so all those things he had, he speaks elsewhere about how he was rising faster than those around him. He would eventually have become a teacher. He would eventually have had his own school. He would eventually have had fame and power and wealth. And he counts all of those things loss because they're of the world. And they have no value in bringing him to God, no value in bringing him to heaven. No point in chasing them. In Ecclesiastes 2 9 through 11, Solomon says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, and my heart also, from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this is my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, in the toil. I had expended in doing, and behold, it was all vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. All the pleasures of this world that he gave himself over to brought him nothing of good. In the end, they brought him foreign wives who worshipped foreign gods, and he bowed down to their idols and paid the price. But there was nothing good, nothing useful in that. We read in James a year year or two ago, in James chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, let the lowly boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. All the things we can accumulate in this life, all the things men spend their lives collecting and gaining, all of it will pass away. The sun rises with the scorching heat and wizards the grass, The flower falls, its beauty perishes. So the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. All these things of the world and all this pride we have in them will pass one day. Men will lose their health and will eventually lose their life and all of their things mean nothing at that point. So these worldly things are not really God's things which brings us to verse 17, not only is the rich man passing away, but the world itself will pass away along with its desires. But Whoever does the will of God will abide forever. I love the way one of the commentators put it. He says, a new age has arrived and the present age is doomed. So don't love that current age, that, the world. I thought that was a very poetic way to do that. I'm not very good at poetry, so I just quoted him. You know, we've seen that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John, First John 5.19. But we also know that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians one thirteen and 14. You know We are no longer part of Satan's world, and Satan's world is passing away as its judgment has already been pronounced. And so our focus really should be on the heavenly things. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3, 1 and following. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So these are the things of this, the world, the worldly things. His list includes sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked Also when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its creator, after the image of its creator. Colossians 3. So... With John, he tells us not to be focusing on the things of this world, but the things of heaven, the things of God. Because where our heart is, there our treasure will be. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be. We need to move our thinking to the things of the Lord. This present age and everything in it is going to pass away, the world. This is what I mean, brothers, 1 Corinthians 7:29 and following. The appointed time has grown short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they did not. Those who mourn as if they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing. And with those who buy as if they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away telling us not to put our thoughts, our hopes, our desires in those things, but in the kingdom of God in obedience to him. Peter, I think, really brings us all into vivid focus in 2 Peter 3, verse 10 and following, talking about the fading away of this world. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to, to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, the, for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, because of which the heavens, which will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise... We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found with him without spot or blemish in that and at peace. So he's telling us this world is not just passing away. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned. All of the things destroyed that we put our hope in and our trust in and our desire for in this world. And we will have a new world, a heavenly world. Filled with righteousness, and it's the things of righteousness then that we should be desiring. We're told to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. That treasure will be ours in heaven and in the new earth. Now, an illustration to help us understand this. When I was young in college, it's hard to imagine now, but I used to work out every day. And I bought a lifetime membership in a health club cost me a fortune, a month's pay while I was working, over a month's pay. Well, a couple of years later, they went out of business. (laughs) I had put my funds into this, you know, pay for it once, have it for my whole life. Good thing. And I'm sure you've all encountered that sort of thing before. You buy something, it goes out of production, and you can't get parts for it. You invest in something and it collapses and you lose your money. You know, we've all seen these things happen. With the world being destroyed by fire and all the things in it gone, setting our heart on those things would be like that. Buying something that's going away. We get to use it for a short time. We get to enjoy it for a little while. And we should be remembering That if it offends God, it has a negative impact on the long term. And we should be avoiding those things. The things of this world. All of the worldly desires will pass away. That's what it says in verse 17. Some of the things that are even good and holy and lawful in this world will be passing away. Uh, I remember reading... Matthew 22:29 and 30 when I first became a Christian and struggling to understand Jesus is answering the unbelieving liberal sadducées who didn't believe the bible or the power of god or miracles or any of those things and he says you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god for at the resurrection they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage but be like angels Now, how far that likeness goes is yet to be really revealed. But marriage, one of the great joys we have as Christians. Two walk together as one. Two are better than one. They help each other. That won't be needed and won't be happening in, in heaven. But think of all the bad things that we love. Those are all gone. All the somewhat meaningless things. We all need to have a place to live, clothes to wear, food to eat those will all be gone when we give over ourselves to the seeking of better of those things and more and the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of things. There's no end, but none of those things will be with us in heaven. You can't take it with you. (coughs) I remember my motto when I first started working for a living was the man with the most toys when he dies wins. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. Can't take it with you. And you'll have wasted your time, your strength, your energy on that and accumulated for yourself only God's wrath. But he says that the world and all of its desires are passing away. Now, when we reach heaven, when we reach the new heavens, the new earth, All of those sinful desires will be gone in our lives, will have been made perfect. Hebrews 12 talks about how we are enrolled in heaven where the spirits of the righteous are made perfect. We will no longer have those sinful and corrupt desires. We're kind of wasting it here. And that's part of the promise, really, of the new covenant, is the day will come when nobody needs to teach us. We'll know what God wants. We'll do what God wants. There'll be no sin left in us, and that is in the new heaven, the new earth. Once this world is gone, there'll be a new world. Uh, Revelation 21, 3 and following. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall we be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We have that to look forward to. We will abide forever with God, everything made new, no longer any cause for sin, no longer any cause for stumbling, no longer any evil desires no longer any pain or suffering or sorrow or grief. It sounds like a wonderful place to live, a joy for us for all eternity, and we will be with him forever and he will be our God. And so this test has that really in focus. Are we looking for, are we desiring a life with God in his kingdom, with the things of his kingdom? Or are we really still desiring only the things of this world? Do we have no hope in heaven? If we don't have our hope in our mind and our thoughts on God and his kingdom, but only on this kingdom in this world, if we are living and loving the world as it belongs to Satan, then we are not not passing that test. What do we work for? What do we focus for? What do we hope in in this life? As a young Christian, it was very hard to focus on the things of the Lord and not on the things of the world. But I hope as we mature in our faith, we come to the point where we see the worthlessness of the things of this world. Especially the sinful and corrupt and useless things, the things that offend God. And we desire only the things then of heaven, of God, and of his kingdom. So the test is, if you love the world, then the Father probably doesn't love you. The Father has not given you to his Son yet, has not transformed your heart, has not made you a new creation, has not caused you to follow his word. Because if you were, you would not love the things of Satan's world but the things of God's kingdom. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and for the things you give us. We thank you, Lord, that you do provide for your people, their needs, that they can have food and shelter and clothing and a wife and a family and friends and church, and that we can love those things as they are part of your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn away from the useless things of this world, the things that lead us to sin, the things that cause others to sin, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Help us, Lord, to turn our hearts from that to you, to your kingdom and to your glory, that we may be with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.